let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 42. Matthew chapter 10. And as we come to this passage, may I say that it is very important to realize that these disciples have been uh, sitting under Jesus' teaching. And now a unique thing is coming about. They're not only to become like him, they are to be sent out to represent him. And so they are going to go out and they're going to share with others. They're going to teach others. God's given them the authority to do things as he did those so that people will know that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And as we come to Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, it says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have been called the head of the house of Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, just want to thank you for this time. want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you as we uh, come together to look further into the book of Matthew and, and as we find out some very important 
things about being a disciple, and I just pray that you'll bring these to our minds and our hearts as we serve you, and always uh, remind us of the importance of you and your kingdom in our lives. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the military world, they have something that is called briefings. We have it in the business world too. But for them, briefings are very important. Before any battle or military engagement, a briefing would take place. And the briefings are where all the right information intended to be given to all the right people to, uh, to do the right things was to happen. And in briefings, you're given directives and shown what to do and what to expect and what may incur. But also, you're challenged with having the right state of mind and the right state of heart for the mission that this briefing is about. And this is what Jesus is basically doing with the disciples. He's giving them briefings about their mission. In Matthew 10, we have a mission that is more important than any military battle or political election or business gathering. Jesus is sending out his apostles, his disciples for their big mission. And Jesus told his disciples that they would not finish their task before he came back. He said in verse 23, But whenever they persecute you in the city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. In other words... They didn't have to worry about opportunities. Opportunities were going to be there. They didn't have to worry about running out of places to go and missions to, uh, to be carried out. There were plenty until he would return. And that's true for us because Jesus has not returned yet. So we need to remember with this information in Matthew that it is not a narrative but a series of points given in this briefing to the disciples to prepare them for going out and the first thing that we need to look at is what to expect and why now look at uh, going back to uh, the first uh, in verse 24 the first part of it, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. Now this is a very important principle of discipleship. What is a disciple? Well, a disciple is basically a learner, isn't he? And a disciple is, is learning and being trained. Now this learning and, and being trained must be in the direction of another so it can be reproduced. And this is what was happening with Jesus. He was reproducing himself in them. And so the learner is one who has received the data of another. The learner must learn the skill of performance so that he can go out. And this is what Jesus is teaching and has been teaching his disciples. If something, and he's telling us something very important about the learner, and he wanted them to understand up front, and he's telling them that if something will happen to me, 
you should expect it to happen to you because you're not greater than the teacher. So you will not be treated any different way. But isn't that a shame? I think that a lot of believers want to be treated differently today than Jesus was. I mean, we, we don't like to mention the part of being persecuted, being turned down, being made fun of, uh, being rejected by our friends and, and uh, by even our families, as we'll talk about in, in, in a little bit. We don't want that part. Matter of fact, if we're not careful, we don't want it so much that we will change the mission of the church. We'll begin to compromise the mission of the church. We'll begin to compromise God's calling us so that we won't offend them and they will love us. Now, I'm not talking about being offensive, uh, you know, purposeful. Lee. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm not talking about trying to turn somebody off. I'm talking about in love just doing what Jesus has called us to do. And that's being faithful to his word. Being faithful to our life uh, with him. Being yielded to him. Being all that he wants us to do, be and, and uh, do all that he wants us to do. So he's saying to his disciples if I am rejected don't expect anything less. You will be rejected. As my disciples, as my apostles, as my representatives, you should expect the same. So, there, you know, this is a very important lesson here. A disciple is not above the teacher. The slave, he says, is not above his master. You know, in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, it says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's discipleship. He, he's wanting them to be trained so that they can go out and they can not only carry out the mission, but also, as they did after the birthing of the church in, in Acts at Pentecost, to train others. To be disciples also. It's an ongoing process. And so this is what Luke further mentions about this. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the sender. He's the one who sends us as members of his body, the church. And so uh, we are to go out. We're to be the pupils, the slaves, the apostles that are being sent out. Later, Jesus will say, just as the Father has sent me, he came on a mission as a son of God. So send I you. So there is a hierarchy here that he's letting us know about that's important. Jesus is saying, what will happen to me will happen to you. You will be heaped upon just uh, insults and, and persecution of all times, of all kinds, just like I will be and I have been. You shouldn't think that you will be exempt from what the teacher experiences. Now in verse 25, it is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Belzebub, 
how much more the members of his household. As we see and we'll see in chapter 12, the Pharisees identifies Jesus as Beelzebub. Now evidently it's been going on. There's been talk, there's been uh, you know, discussion, there's been uh, gossip about him being this. Why is that so? Well, Jesus, he'll, he'll straighten them out in chapter 12. Why? And uh, he'll give his reason. But he says, it, you know, there if Beelzebub, uh, you know, if he is a leader... And if he's casting out his own army, then he's defeating himself. He says, why am I casting out demons if I'm undermining, you know, I would be undermining my own house if I did that. But see, the Pharisees' argument is a very desperate one, like we see in this world today. If you'll, if you'll notice a lot of attempts on the church and, and godly people and Christians are very desperate ones. I mean, they're silly ones if you're a Christian because you know that how ridiculous to think that way. But see, the, it's just like with Jesus. It was the same thing. The enemies of Jesus, they were put in an awkward position every time Jesus performed one of his miracles. And every time that we talk about how God is working, how God is changing lives, and they see lives being changed in people, and, and they see th God uh, doing wonderful things, they want to ridicule. Why? Because they can't explain. It puts them in an awkward position because they have denied Jesus. And so in turn, they are very desperate, just like these Pharisees were. And so... They have tried to explain everything away that Jesus has done. The world will do that with us. The lost who are in opposition against God will do that with the church. And Jesus says in verse 25, You can count on being persecuted for my namesake and even more so. If they call me the, <clears throat> the head of the house, Beelzebub, how much more the members of the household. Isn't it amazing? That so far, much more, as we've been studying Matthew and as you study the Gospels, much more is about the rejection of Jesus and his message than the reception. Much more is about the rejection. He has told them that they would be going out as sheep among wolves, that they would be brought before governors and kings for his namesake, that they would be delivered up by family members before the officials, and that they would be persecuted. So how can we face this? As a disciple, how can we face what we will experience? Verse 26, Jesus tells them, therefore do not fear them. Well, that's easy to say, isn't it? All of us want to be loved. And man, when we're torn down, when we're made fun of, then, oh, that, that hurts our self-esteem, doesn't it? There's one thing that we need to understand. To have a good, I guess you'd call self-esteem, that self-esteem needs to be absorbed in God-esteem. If you're going to really like yourself, you've got to see yourself the way God sees you. It's got to be God esteem. God's got to be first in your life. And so in turn, we go by self-esteem. 
we go by our five senses, and so we don't like to be turned down. None of us do that. Well, we need that God esteem. And how do we face it? Realizing that God is in control, that he's the one that we're to please, that he's the one that brings true joy, completeness to ourselves. And so he says, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. They can make fun of you. They can ridicule you. They can even persecute you. And with the disciples and other Christians in in the first century, they can even take your life. But let me tell you, that is just to a point. That's just the physical. He talks about the soul, the spiritual. He says, I know all of this. None of it's hidden from me. I know what they say. I know what they do. He says, therefore, and that links all that Jesus had been preparing them for, and he's telling his disciples, don't be fearful of any of that. There is coming a judgment day. How can they not be fearful? He tells them what is concealed will be revealed. In other words, he's letting us know here that there's life after death. There's life after death. And so in turn, we are just here temporarily in our physical body. But one day we're going to be with him for all eternity if we're a believer. And we're going to have a glorified body. The body that was made possible by Christ who died on the cross was buried and resurrected. And so we can rejoice in that. And so... He is letting them know here. In verse 27, he says, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim it upon the housetops. In other words, what I've been teaching you, you'll soon be making known this to the lost world. Some will receive and some will reject. It will become public. That is what your ministry is all about. And so in the book of Acts, we read about this. We read about the disciples who were filled with the Spirit of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God, and they began to proclaim what Christ had been teaching them. When we're born again, what is the blessing of being born again? We have eternal life, but with that eternal life, Who is our down payment that comes to live within us? The Holy Spirit. He indwells us. And so he says in verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Here Jesus speaks of both Hades and Gehenna. Hades, the abode of the dead. But Gehenna is hell, the place of everlasting punishment. Now, if you read in the Gospels carefully, you'll find out that Jesus speaks more about hell than heaven. Was it because he liked to and it was a popular uh, subject to talk about? No. This doesn't mean that hell is more important than heaven. It means that in our present state, in our fallen state, we have more difficulty understanding and accepting hell than we do heaven. You just ask people. 
They want to think that it's going to be nice and sweet when you die and everybody's going to die. And, and if there's something beyond, everybody's going to experience that something beyond that's going to be wonderful. Do you hear preachers preach that much about hell today? Do you? Jesus did. It is real. It's not something that we delight in. Boy, I'm glad to be able to preach about hell today. No. It's not. But he knew, just like we should understand, that hell is something that people will not and have a difficulty with understanding what, it, what it's all about. And they will not accept it. For the most part, they don't want to accept that. God is love. Do you think that he's going to do something like that? They'll tell you. You see, he gives a warning here. And he, he, he clearly reaffirms the reality of hell. And he gives a warning. We should not fear those who kill the body. But for after all, they cannot touch the soul. The person, the real being that lives on. This old body is just a shell. One day we'll die, but our real being will either go to heaven or hell. And so if we go to heaven, we'll be blessed with God's presence and eternal life with Him forever. And one day we'll be coming back when the rapture occurs and when the Lord comes back and we will have that body reunited with our soul, our being, but it will be in such a state that it will be glorified like the Lord when he appeared after he was resurrected. They could touch him, couldn't they? They could see him. Of course, he could be here and disappear and be someplace else. Boy, that's going to be nice. You won't have to worry about traffic, will you? In that, <laughs> I mean, my goodness. So, that, this is the wonderful thing about it, and, and, and he reassures them of this. And, and he's telling, you know, that they can kill you, they can, they can persecute you, they can even kill you, but they cannot unsoul you. I don't know if that's a word or not, but it is now. Unsoul you. They cannot judge the soul. They cannot send the soul to hell, but God can. And will if they reject him. Not because he delights in it, but because they have rebelled and chosen to. You know the Nike slogan, no fear? That's not what Jesus is telling us here, is it? There is fear. There's a right kind of fear. Completely misleading. Because, you see, there are certain things that we shouldn't fear but there's certain things that we should fear right and one of them is God in the right sense it's not merely talking about being scared it's talking about we should fear him lest we sin against him and bear the consequences bear his wrath and the only way that we are not going to bear his wrath because we continue to sin is what by asking God to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us and to make us a child of his. And that's the message that they were to go out and share with those that were lost. 
We're told that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And a part of wisdom is to know he is loving and gracious, yes. But also, he is holy and righteous and true and just. He must punish sin. Not because he desires to, but because of the wickedness of man's heart. He will destroy the sinner, both body and soul, in hell. Now, let me clarify something here. This is where a lot of people say, oh, well, when we die, we'll just be annihilated and we won't, we'll cease to exist. This is not talking about annihilation. It's talking about bringing to ruin. That's what the word means there in that context. You see, eternal punishment. Destruction is a state of punishment. Just like we have a state of being blessed or blissfulness in heaven. This is a state of punishment. And so it is a real state. It's eternal punishment that the person will experience. It will be a state of ruin. Ruin. And then Jesus goes on and comforts them. He says he loves and cares for his disciples by saying that uh, his love and concern are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He lets his disciples know that God cares for his creation. He says you can buy two sparrows for a penny. Yet not one of those sparrows falls to the ground apart from the Father. Him knowing. Him being a part of it. He knows all about it. He knows what happened. He knows when it happened. Then Jesus contrasts the sparrow with the human by saying, But every hair of your head or every one of your hairs are numbered by him. Now, don't try to pull out your hair and see if there's a number on there. Hey, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is there's thousands of particles falling off our body every day. And as you grow older, you'll find that in your hairbrush, a lot of us. I mean, it, it, uh, it reveals the ravages of time and the ravages of age. <laughs> every one of those hairs are numbered by God. And I haven't put, picked up one to see if there's a number, but I don't think there is. He just knows them. What he's letting us know is he cares. He knows it, even the hair that drops out of your head. The skin particles. As we grow older, he knows the state that we're in. Every age, uh, every, uh, age that we face, everything that we go through, sickness, health, God knows every single aspect of us. And that is encouraging to know if you're a child of his. He's letting them know that he cares for them. He was telling disciples that they might be persecuted. He knows about it. They might be hurt. He knows about it. They even might be killed. He knows about that. But he says, let me tell you, if they take your life, it is not without me knowing about it. I'm in charge. And I want to tell you this. I'm going to be there waiting for you. And I'm going to take you home to be with me. You're going to be with me. And guess what? 
nobody, nothing can separate you from my love. And you will be for me or with me for all eternity. And you won't have to experience the pain that you went through, the sorrow, the persecution, the tears that were shed, the grief, any of that. That's going to be done away with it. And then the assurance God promises, verse 32 and 33. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father. Not so much in context here of salvation, is it? It's in context of discipleship and persecution. And here he says to confess Jesus and his message of the kingdom meant that they were not to compromise or fail to proclaim Christ as the king of Israel. And if they did, then the blessings would not be upon them. They would be going their own way. And they would forsake the rewards that perhaps were there for them. But it could also mean that it could prove that some were never his disciples at all. Because persecution brought that out. So he lets them know. He says, this will come about. But stay true. Be steadfast. And then he addresses any misconception. He, there's you know, a little bit of misconception here about peacemakers. He talked about peacemakers. He says in verse 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, see, there's going to be some people that misconceive that, misconstrue this. And he won't set it straight. For I came to set a man against his father and daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against his father-in-law and a man's enemies will be the enemies of his household. And so what he's letting us know is, he says, when I told you earlier in chapter 5 of Matthew in, in the Sermon on the Mount that I've called you to be peacemakers, it's not peacemakers to the point of compromise. It's not peacemakers to the point of making me second in your life. They needed to understand that there is not peace in this world. And we can strive for it, but true peace will only come through knowing Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and keeping him at the first in their life. They do not have that inner peace apart from Jesus. Sin separates them from Jesus. And some people would reject the gospel and they would not have that peace. And it may be in the families, it may be in the friends, and it may be other people. And they may not understand your commitment to me. Because with the Jewish people during that day and time, they, if, if you rejected what they believed, which going with Jesus and putting him first, then the family was number one, the na nationale was number one being a, an Israelite, and so in turn, they would just consider them dead. They would even, to uh, many points, have a funeral for them. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. 
But Jesus is telling them with this message, I'm not coming to lead Israel in some victory over Rome. I'm coming to lead the people of Israel as well as the world in a victory over Satan and sin and death. Eternal separation from me. Eternal separation from God's kingdom. And he says, many will not understand that. And they will be hostile towards you. And they will reject you. But you're to put Christ first. He says in verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and who, who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now this is interesting because the Bible places such importance on the family. And so the, uh, what he's saying here is, uh, you know, I know the Bible holds great responsibility for the child to honor the father and mother and for the, the parents to, to love and nurture the children. But what I'm telling you is it may sound like acid to the family, but it isn't. I'm telling you what to expect. A fallen world does not have peace with God, and that's what I'm coming to bring, peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's how you come into the family of God. By placing Christ first in your heart and your life. Choosing him above everything else. It doesn't mean that it will be easy. But you know, when I do it and I practice it, I learn that something very important when I put Christ above my wife. When I say I love Christ more than I love my wife. Why? Because in Ephesians, what does it say? Husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, if she really wants to see the love developed in my life the way that it should be, a notch up, then what am I to do? As I love Christ first, I can begin to love her the way that I should love as he gave himself for the church. I'm to give myself for her. Wow. You see, God's not really against the family. He's wanting the family to understand that for them to really have a complete whole family, loving the children, disciplining the children, you know, talking about commitment and all this and them understanding that, they've got to see it in you to the Lord first. And as they see your commitment to him the way that it should be, then it will be directed and taught to the children the way it should be. So Christ is telling them this. And, and he's, he's telling them that, hey, you're to have allegiance to me first. It's, it's like becoming an American. When you become a citizen here, you really relinquish your citizenship in your former place and you become a citizen here and God forbid if there ever broke out a war between that country and and America where would your allegiance be or should be with America now shouldn't it 
And so the Lord expects the same kind of pledge from the church. This may be one of the reasons why we don't experience the peace of mind and heart in our lives the way we should. Because we're not stable with that. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus gave himself for his followers without limitation. And for one to be worthy of him to come in his standard, he demands absolute priority. And then, you know, he says... um, And he who does not take up his cross, follow me, uh, is not worthy of me. And that taking up cross means that it is a daily process. And not only that, it means that just like when a convict was or a uh, a criminal was carrying that that bar through the city with his arms tied to it, he was telling Rome that they were right. And he was wrong, that he was guilty. Well, Jesus says, carry that cross. If they say that, hey, you're a Christian, I'm guilty. If they say, hey, you're standing up for standards and, that are old-fashioned and, and that are, you know, are taught in the Bible, I'm guilty. Tell, you know, if they, they tell you, hey, you know, you're acting like this or you're, you're giving towards the church and, and you need that money for yourself. I'm guilty. I'm a Christian. God has given his life for me. So what we're to expect for being a disciple, he who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. That's what it is all about. And whoever in the name of the disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. We will not lose our reward. We will be rewarded for being a faithful disciple. Let me close with this. A young boy in the country, village in England, he struggled hard uh, to study for the ministry. And an old cobbler helped him in whatever way he could, financially and other ways. And when the young man was finally licensed to preach, the cobbler said to the young man, he said, I always had in my heart the desire to be a minister of the gospel. But circumstances never made it possible. You're doing what was always my dream, but never a reality. I want you to let me make your shoes for nothing. And I want you to wear them in the pulpit when you preach. In that way, I will feel you're preaching the gospel. I always wanted to preach, standing in my shoes. Helping others, assisting others. I want to close with this. What you did, just in the event leading up to Saturday, what you did out there, and what others did in coming and being a part and being so friendly and and gracious and all this, God recognizes this and rewards it. 
He promises that. Are we disciples of the Lord? Are we following the steps that he's left for us to follow? Did we recognize all of this? Did we acknowledge this? Or are we shocked that he said some of these things? Putting him above family? Have we not come to that point of realizing that we really don't understand family? Not the way that we should until we do put him above family. Then family will become important to us. Are we compromising? Are we teaching our children as we become disciples, what's important to them. Let's bow our heads in prayer.